chairman notes in the bulletin, but the ushers also have notes that they're going to move through the auditorium, and if you do not have a copy of those from the bulletin, just raise your hand. They'll hand those to you while we are in this study on 1 Kings. We started last week on a study on the life of Elijah that we'll go through for the next few weeks, and it's dealing with his different aspects. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, there's a whole different aspect that I find very interesting. Let me see if can I relate and give you a setting of what we're doing. When I was growing up, one of the things I enjoyed doing personally was that doing drawing, doing artwork, and uh, drawing pictures. And, and I would do this a lot, the doodling and, and the different drawings, and I wanted to, to get to develop this skill. I never did. In fact, just to give you an idea, I passed it on to my one daughter who uh, she had about the same artistic skill that I did. I remember one day coming home and she was drawing pictures there as a five-year-old drawing family pictures and it came in and I said, oh honey, you're doing such a wonderful job. And she says, daddy, thank you, thank you. Do you know what this is? And I looked down at the picture and it looked like a pig. There was a body, four legs, a tail at one end, a hen at the other end. And I said, oh honey, you did such a beautiful pig. She says, oh daddy, you're so funny. That's you. Okay. <laughs> the, tuft was, the tuft was at the back end. I guess that's what I did. And so I didn't have great ability like my daughter, but, but I wanted to do things. I remember my mom kept one drawing that I did. This is, this is uh, the one piece that she gave to me about three years ago. I went home and says, hey, I kept on your, your scrapbook type thing. She says, I kept one picture you did when you were in the third grade. We were to draw a picture of something that we wanted to become at that time. And I had drawn a picture, and we were Roman Catholic at the time. I drew a picture of a bishop in the Catholic Church with this mitre, the staff, the whole thing. And we just joked about it how when I was a little kid I wanted to be in ministry of some sort and I ended up in a whole different denomination but a bishop in a whole different group. And so we have those artworks. The problem is I wasn't real good with it. Okay? And, and here's what I do or did and still do at times. If I draw something and it doesn't get quite right, I start erasing. And then I'd redraw it. And then erase it and redraw it. None of you would do this. But by the time I'm done, there's nothing left of the paper. I've just re, you know, just kept on erasing and erasing and erasing. When I do anything like I've worked once or twice with clay, oh my word, that lump kept on going back to a lump, to a lump, to a lump, to a lump. And I never get it quite right. I do that same thing when I do any kind of woodwork and stuff like that. I'm just not good at it. And I never get it the way I want. Do you realize that God is a master artist? That he is working and he can get things the way he wants if the material agrees with him. Do you know what I mean? We're the material. Do you remember in Jeremiah, and as well as Isaiah talks about, he is the potter, we are the clay. And he will do a masterful work in us, through us, with us, if we cooperate with him. We read in Ephesians chapter 2. This is the passage that many of you like where it talks about, for by grace are you saved through faith, and honor yourselves, it is a gift of God. And it talks about salvation. The next phrase goes this way, we are his poema. The word is we are his masterpiece. King James is workmanship. It's the idea that he would make something artistically beautiful with us and through us, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In 1 Kings, there's an example where God is doing whittling. 
that would work in the heart of Elijah. It is an interesting passage. And the reason it draws my attention to it is because if you read in 1 Kings, starting with verse 17, or chapter 17, jump down to verse 2, it tells us how God is taking Elijah and sending him to the whittling place, the cut-down place, the place where you cut off the rough edges. In your Bible, that word is kareth or cherith, however you want to say it. It means to whittle down the rough edges. And that's exactly what God is going to do with Elijah. Create a masterpiece with him if he is willing. Let me set the scene for you. King Ahab and Jezebel are on the throne. We've read about this and talked about it last week in chapter 16. They are the most wicked and corrupt of all the leaders of Israel up to this point in history. They have uh, promoted Baal worship. They have gotten rid of all the prophets of, of Jehovah except for just a couple hundred of them that we'll talk about next week. And so what happens is God directs Elijah to go and confront this king and queen and tell them they have done enough wickedness, it's got to stop. The words that he uses is in 1, king, 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite who was on the inhabitants of Gilgal said to King Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel is living before whom I stand and worship, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. He's pronouncing a judgment upon the kingdom. And that judgment, it comes out of the book of Deuteronomy that God said, if you put other gods before me, I will hold back the rain. And so he's coming before them and saying, you two are going to be doomed and God is openly going to chasten you because you have resisted following Jehovah and you are promoting Baal. And he makes it very clear, Jehovah is the God, not Baal. He declares that God is still alive and well in Israel. He declares that God is a God of justice and punishment and discipline for those who do wrong. Here he is, a godly servant, and God still needs to mold him, still needs to work in his heart. And God is going to do that in verses 2 and following. God has a plan for him and wants to build him and want to use him, but before he can use him, he needs to change him and prepare him. You know, the bottom line is this, even though you have really served the Lord in some phenomenal ways this week, you as a body, put on a Bible school that was amazing. You worked hard, you labored, you prayed, you supported it in some way or fashion. And a number of young people got saved and God has used you. There is still room for growth in all of our lives. We have never come to a spot, we should never come to a spot where we say, I have it down pat spiritually. I've got this under control, how to raise a family. I've got this all figured out, how to be spiritual. I've got it all figured out as far as my marriage and what I've done and I don't need to improve in any area anymore. That's a dangerous thought. Because we need to remember, if any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. There is room for growth and that's what happens in Elijah's life. God is going to grow him some more, starting with verse 2. And it's amazing what God does with him. And it's blessing how Elijah responds. Now there's several ways that God builds, starts building him. Now what God does is he gives him a command a command that is really unusual and a command that is difficult. It's going to be in verse 2. Elijah grows because Elijah is willing to obey God at all times even though God gives him a strange command. Let me, let me point out what's happening. Elijah, as we've seen in verse 1, is a man of action. 
He's a man of bravado. He's a man of courage. He's a man that will not shy away from the public eye at all. He goes to the king. He stands before him. He boldly speaks about serving the Lord. And he's got the king somewhat on the ropes. He says, your kingdom's going to be in real trouble. The rain's going to stop. Your economy's going to collapse. The people will be considering whether you're a good ruler and should they follow you anymore. And so Ahab is going to respond within the next few weeks by sending out search parties for Elijah. He is in real trouble. If you read, and we'll see it in the next couple of weeks, in chapter 18 verse 10 that he, that he sends throughout all the kingdoms of the area. Where is Elijah? Where is Elijah? I'm in trouble because of Elijah. Elijah's a powerful man. He's a potent man. He's a prophet that speaks before the Lord. And God says, you who are bold, you who are brave, you who are strong, go into hiding. What a strange command. He doesn't tell him to rally all the, the remnant of the believers. He says, you go into hiding all by yourself. You get away from everything. And so we read in verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him saying, get hence, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Kareth that is before Jordan, and it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you. And then we read verse 5, those interesting words, he went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's, that's, that strikes me so odd that here he travels to this remote area somewhere near the Jordan River, a place that means to whittle, to cut off, to get rid of the rough edges. God is working in Elijah's heart. There's so much to do. There's so many people to reach. But God says, I want you to go aside. I want to have this time with you. And so you just go in private. Though you're a real public and bold man, God says, Elijah, go aside. It's time just to pause for a little bit in an isolated spot for a period of time. What a strange command for, give, for God to give to a man like Elijah. Oh yeah, it makes sense. He's going to be a hunted man, but still, he has no qualms with standing before hundreds. You'll see that in chapter 18. He's willing to stand before thousands and have a contest. There is nothing about this man that is shy, but God says, I want you to run. I want you to go away. Such an unusual order, and he listens. He does what God says when God gives him an unusual command. You know what strikes me? Is that as we are growing in our Christian life, there is never an end to commands that God gives. He keeps on giving us things to work on, commands to follow, that we can keep on improving, growing, bettering our walk with him, our witness before others, the question is whether we will obey his commands. The question is whether we are going to continue to grow or if we stop and say, Lord, this doesn't make sense. You're telling me to go into private. You're telling me not to do what I am geared up to do and to be, and you're wanting to work with me and my personality, but I'm a person of action. I just want... If Elijah had resisted and insisted on doing what he wanted to do and doing works of God the way he thought it should be at the moments he wanted, would he have grown? Do you grow any further than what you have or have you come to a halt because you are not following up with the next commands of God? We could list out 
a number of different instances in Scripture where God gave unusual commands to individuals. One of the most, the most potent ones is in Acts chapter 9. You remember the story? Saul is persecuting the believers. Saul is going all over, it says, hailing the men and women to prison who have confessed Christ as their Savior. He's gotten letters to go to the city of Damascus and to arrest even more believers and to hail them or haul them to jail. And as he is going, remember the story, all of a sudden he's blinded by a light that shines from heaven. It's the Lord Jesus speaking to Saul and saying, I am the one whom you persecute. Why are you kicking against the conviction that I'm bringing into your heart? He responds by saying, I put my faith in you. I call upon you to be my Savior. And God tells him to go into the city and wait. I will send somebody to you to give you the next step. Well, in the meantime, God appears in a vision to a man named Ananias. He's a believer. And God says, Ananias, I have a job for you. Ready, Lord. Willing to do whatever you want. I want you to go and talk to a new believer. That's my, my job. I'll gladly do it. God, I, I, I crave those opportunities to share the gospel and the good news and disciple some new believer. I'm excited. Okay, I want you to go to such and such a street, such an address on Straight Street. And you knock on a door, and when you get there, you knock, oh yeah, Lord, I know where that street is. I'll gladly go. I'm ready to go. I'm putting on my coat now. I'm out the door. Who am I going to ask for? You're going to ask for Saul of Tarsus. Okay, Lord, I'm taking off my coat. <laughs> He's a persecutor. He's killed my friends. Are you sure we didn't get our signals crossed, God? He doesn't do that. He does say, Lord... I've heard of him. He's a persecutor. And God says, he's the one I want you to go to. And you know what Ananias does? He goes. He goes and meets Paul, Saul, and he ministers to Saul, who eventually becomes the apostle Paul. Do you remember what the other believers do? When Saul tries to associate with the other believers, they won't have anything to do with them. Ananias does. Because Ananias is willing to take the next step, the step of ministering as God has commanded him to minister. Do you take the next step? You know, what happens when we first get saved? We profess Christ as our Savior. The next step is getting baptized by immersion. Some are stuck right there. There's the area of getting into a church and getting busy and serving. Some never grow much because they're stuck right here. There's the area of working on your marriage, working in your family, obeying and respecting your parents, showing respect for authority. Some never grow beyond this point because they refuse to do a command that they struggle with. There are some who will never grow beyond this one point where God commands you to be a witness. And you don't take tracks, you don't take those opportunities and God speaks to you week after week after week in his word, through the preaching, through ministry, and still you're not moving forward in that area. There are some who God says, I want you to teach. This is the job of a church. A church isn't to just get together on Sunday morning and just to listen to me speak or whoever the preacher may be. It is to listen and then take it and train others. Share it with others. And some will never grow further because they don't take it and share it. They don't minister. They just keep on taking in, keep on taking out, but never give it out. The Word of God is so clear that He gives us multiple commands, 
For some of you, you're stuck right on this step, never to move forward because God commands you to forgive someone who hurt you deeply, who spoke against you, who deserted you. Without forgiveness, you will never move the next step. There are some here who are going to be stymied and be at a lower step. Why? God commands you to work at your marriage, but you're just enduring. You are not willing to work at doing your part on improving this marriage, and you won't grow. And God gives us commands that say they are given not to hurt us, but to help us to grow more and more and more and more in Christ. Elijah grew. He's used bountifully. Why? Because he listened to the Lord when God gave him an unusual command. God gives him not only an unusual command, but to build him. God says, I want time with you alone. And so Elijah is willing to spend time with God, even though there's so much to do. There are so many thousands to win from Baal to Jehovah. There are so many preachers to go and to correct their teaching. There are so many people in the court of Ahab and Jezebel that need to be shown that Jehovah is God. But God says, I want you to come apart, and I want you to spend time with me. Now, did you catch it? what happens in the text? It says, get thee hence, turn the eastward, hide yourself by the brook Hereth, that it is before you, and it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and dwelt by the brook Hereth, that is before Jordan, and the ravens brought. Now, the reason I bring this all up and just read it this way, there's nobody else there. There's nobody else at this spot. It is isolated. There is no farmers there. There is no ordering out. He cannot call Panera to deliver. There is no pizza to, go, to be brought to him. There's nobody there. It is in such a remote area that it's going to be bird food that he's going to get. How long he's there, I don't know, and neither do you. We know it's long enough that this area is affected by the drought. So it has to be weeks, months that go by. We thought our grass was brown the last few days. We were rejoicing, some of you, as you came in this morning, that we needed the rain. Others of you were cursing it. Okay. But his area was deeply affected so that the river drives up. So it's been a period of time. Many think it's a year, maybe two years. Remember, the drought lasts three and a half years, according to James chapter 5. And so he's there for an extended period of time with nobody. His only companions are ravens who show up in the morning and in the evening but there's one other person here. The other person is described as what he does in James chapter 5 where it says he prayed fervently and it goes on that it might not rain and it did not rain. And that passage that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In the Greek language, it's he prays and prays and prays. and pr This is a prayer time. This is an extended fellowship time with God. This is a spiritual retreat that God takes him to. Though there is so much business to be done, God says, I want time with you alone. I, you're, busy, you're busy with, with being a prophet. You're busy with going to have to show him how to redo worship, which we'll get to in chapter 18. You've got lots to do, but right now I just want time with you. Because for you to really be effective, we need some alone time. And Elijah's willing to do it. Now, I want you to make these observations. Being busy for the Lord is great. 
It is wonderful to be serving the Lord. That's what should be a, a, a major part of your testimony. Your reputation is you are one who is serving the Lord. But being alone with God is even better yet. And you and I as Americans in a busy, productive society have this reversed too often. We think that the best thing to do is just busy, 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 busy. And we are. You are. But what about your time with the Lord? What about that alone time where God says, wait a minute, I want to have some personal time with you before I can use you I need to really work in your heart and to change you and to get you to think like, hey, listen, you go through the Bible, you'll find these instances. You'll find Moses before he is greatly used, and he was willing to be used. At 40 years of age, he slays the Egyptian because he knows he is, be, he is called to be the deliverer. But he isn't ready yet. God knows this. He does it in his own strength and God has to take him on the backside of a desert for 40 years to get him to be a humble individual. And then when he starts leading Israel through the Red Sea, God takes him on the mount, Mount Sinai, for 40 days of alone time with God to mold him into the leader he needs to be. You have the account of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, our Master, before he begins ministry, he goes out, he gets baptized, and after he has this momentous occasion where he's baptized publicly, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And there are people willing to follow. God takes them alone into a wilderness, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, we read in Matthew. And he's there for 40 days, tempted by Satan, tested, but God has an alone time with he and his son before he launches into his ministry. You have the same thing with the Apostle Paul. If you read chronologically his life story, he gets saved in Acts 9. He doesn't show up ministering until Acts 11. There is seven years at least in between, and he talks about later on that he was in the wilderness and in Tarshish with the Lord for an extended period of time learning the Word of God, one-on-one -on -one with God. We should put another name up here, Elijah. Elijah is taken into the brook of Kareth for at least, we said, probably a year, maybe a year and a half alone time. Nobody else. It's him and God because God wanted that time with him. Could we put your name here? Could we suggest that you spend special times alone with God where he can whittle you? Or is it one of these times where it's kind of like running through the day, hi God, I'm busy, bless my day, and you're off to your next activity? Oh, I understand, we're busy. We've got lots of activity, but what about time of adoration? What about time alone with the Lord where he can speak to your heart, where he can mold you, where he can convict you and comfort you? When's the last time you had a retreat with God where you just pulled aside, pulled apart from everything else and had time alone with the Lord? It's a whittling time. Elijah, I want you to just grow. And then God whittles him this way. I want you to trust me. I want you to rely upon me, and the way you're going to have to do this is just trust me to meet your needs. 
I'm taking you to Kareth. There's nothing there, but there's water, and there's no stores, but I'm going to take care of that. Do you notice how he said it to him already? He said, hey, um, uh, I'm going to tell the birds to feed you. And I, I'm sorry, I'm not thrilled by verse 4 if I were Elijah. I'm going to eat bird meat. Is it roadkill? Okay. I'm sure it's not prepared. I mean, seriously. Any of you have birds at home? Yes, no? You have bird pets? Who feeds who? Do you feed the birds or do the birds feed you? You feed the birds. None of us, none of us are saying, okay, I'm sitting here waiting for the barbecue the birds are bringing in. It doesn't happen. And God is saying, you know, I'm, you, you, know, you can't use, I can't, you know, I need to eat. As an excuse, I'm taking care of it. You go to Kareth, you're going to be by yourself, and I've planned your water and your food for this extended period of time. I'm giving you a balanced diet here. Okay, they're going to bring you the bread and the meat. And they come in a very unusual means. Number one, it's birds. Number two, these are unclean birds. You realize that, right? These are birds that the Jews don't want anything to do with. But God is bringing through an unclean bird his food. He's bringing it and he's providing it on a regular basis, twice a day. As long as those birds come, he's eating. So here God is providing for him and he's got to trust. He's got to trust in God to provide. And God isn't giving him a freezer full of food. God isn't giving him a, a, you know, a credit card to giant God is giving him his meal twice a day and nothing for tomorrow. I'm just going to provide as you need, when you need. You got to trust me. You just got to trust me. There are several lessons that stand out to me that are just uh, obvious from this passage. God provides where God directs. If God directs you towards a certain ministry, God provides you. God leads your family to get involved with some vocational ministry, he provides. God leads you to go to a certain school to prepare for your career, God provides. God leads you to a certain job and change in your life, a certain God will provide as is needed. Something else that strikes me, he's interested in the small matters of provision. There's, there's a whole big land here. There's a whole bunch of people here. And God is taking care of Elijah in small matters of one meal at a time twice a day. In fact, not a single person who's in God's family is left out. I will look for you, Elijah. And while I'm taking care of you, Elijah, I will take care of those other prophets that have been faithful to me, as we'll see in chapter 18. God is concerned of providing your needs, your needs, your needs, and he will provide as he leads. You and I need to trust him day by day. Isn't this contrary to our culture? Our culture is so geared up to having a stockpile of food, of money, of pensions, of stuff for a rainy day. That's what we are trained to think. That's what we are geared up to operate by. That's what our houses and our kitchens are filled with. We think of provisions for weeks. And God is saying, you just got to trust me. Even if I take you down to day to day, and even if I take you down to certain times of the day, you got to trust me. You got to trust me. 
You got to rely upon me. This reliance needs to be an ongoing task, not just when you have a crisis, not just when you're between jobs. It's got to be all the time. Can, can I ask you the, the challenging question? Do you have room for growth in this area? I know I do. This area of all areas of trusting and relying on a daily basis, on an ongoing basis, what a challenge. What a challenge. Do you really trust the Lord? Even though the Lord has put you in a bad spot right now, you consider bad. It's a challenge. It's difficult. Are you trusting the Lord? Are you asking Him for the wisdom? Are you relying upon Him to the way you respond to this difficult moment and how your needs are being met? Are you trusting or are you panicking or are you resisting the trial? Are you saying, I don't want this in my life. I want comfort. I want security. I don't want trials. I don't want troubles. I don't want uncertainties. But that's how God is growing you. But I don't want it. But that's how God is growing you. Come to a point where you say, I am willing to be whittled by the Spirit of God. I will rely. I will trust. How are you going to do it? There's another area that goes right along with this. And it is the area that God is whittling him. God is having him trust him for his daily food. And then in the middle of trusting him for his daily food, a bigger trial comes. The bigger trial is read in this passage where God all of a sudden says, you're trusting me, you're doing great, you're doing good, now I'm going to see if you're going to, you're going to really follow through even more. Watch what we read. We'll say it again. The ravens brought him his bread and flesh in the morning, bread and flesh in the evening. He drank of the brook. And, verse 7, it came to pass after a while that the brook did what? Because there was no rain in the land. Whoa. I'm serving you, God. I'm, I'm following you. I'm doing exactly what you want me to do. I'm right where you want me to be. I'm at Kareth. I'm spending time praying to you. I'm trusting you to provide every day. I haven't gotten off the mountain. I haven't run to town to get my freezer filled. I'm trusting you, and I'm relying upon you. And what do you do to me? You dry up all the water. How? How can you do that? Okay, now remember, he's at this brook because God told him to go there. How long he's there, we don't know. But as the drought is going on, do you think he noticed the grass was turning brown? Do you think he saw that the trees in the distance were drying up? What do you think went through his mind as he saw the, the creek getting smaller and smaller? What would you have thought? I know in my mind, I think if I was there and I saw the water was getting less and less, I would start making alternative plans. I would have a backup plan. I would make reservations somewhere else. And here he is. This is drying up. I would, I would say, you, you wouldn't do this, but I would. God, did you know this brook was going to dry up? Why did you send me here? Why didn't you send me to the Mediterranean? Well, one, I can't drink it. But why didn't you send me somewhere else where it wouldn't dry up? Why does in the middle of God's will does the brook dry up? 
It's a whittling time. It's a time when he's trusting the Lord and things get worse before they get. He's not the only one. You know, the bottom line is trials do not mean we've done something wrong. Sometimes they come because we've done something right. They don't mean that God is against us. In fact, let's make an observation. When you make a significant step of faith, mark it down, there's going to be difficulty afterwards. So many believers, so many people think, if, I'm, if I say I'm going to do something for the Lord, everything will get better and better and rosier, and as soon as it doesn't, they quit. Well, if you go through the Bible and follow a pattern, you're going to see frequently that God brings people through a Red Sea experience. They see the waters open. They follow through. They're worshiping the Lord. They're so excited. They sing the psalms of praise as they see Pharaoh's army totally destroyed. They start marching and following the Lord, and the first thing that happens, they run out of water. Oh, no, what are we going to do? We're in the desert. There's only a couple million of us. Our kids are thirsty. We're thirsty, and there's no water. What are we going to do? And then after the water issue is resolved, then there's the food issue. And the food issue is brought into their lives so that they would trust. But instead they panic and they accuse and they get upset. After mountaintops, there are valleys that challenge us. It's a whittling process. You find it in time and time again. Let's take one of the most classic characters of Scripture that we think are heroic. A young boy, 17 years of age, his brothers, jealous of him, hate him. They sell him to the slave traders. They take his clothes and put blood on it and say to their dad he was killed by a lion. So dad doesn't search, send out a search party. But he's taken down into Egypt. Down into Egypt, Joseph ends up on a slave block. He is sold, and you know the story, to Potiphar. When he gets into Potiphar's house, he does his best. He doesn't rebel. He doesn't resist. He's in a whittling spot. And he is making the best of his circumstances, doing his very best, not going into, into a mode of resistance and rebellion and pity and woe is me, he is serving. He is contributing. He is trying to do something productive as a witness for the Lord. When the, the wife of Potiphar, who is a wicked, wily woman, when she makes advances, he resists. When she catches him alone in a room, he leaves his garment in her hands running away. He wants nothing to do with it. Though it could profit him, though it could be pleasurable, though it could be to his benefit, he resists because it's wrong. And he runs away doing what's right. And as a result of doing what's right, what is his reward? Where does he end up? In jail. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it does work. Because sometimes we end up with difficulties now. In the end, we will be on the victor side. In the meantime, we remain on his side, living victorious in the face of the difficulties. Genesis 12. What an amazing passage. A man who is in his 70s packs up his family, leaves his home that he has known his entire life. That's commendable because God told him to move. So he packs them all up and he moves and he moves and he moves. Doesn't know where he's going. But he moves until what? 
God says, you've arrived. Now that's a moving experience, right? He arrives in the promised land and God is pleased with Abraham. I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. He's excited. He's heard the voice of God. God has told him to come to the promised land. And what happens within the weeks that he's there? It says a famine strikes the land. He's tested. A trial comes immediately. Is he going to stay where God has directed him? In fact, later on, he is told, you're going to have a boy, you're going to have a boy, and he and his wife, they maneuver all kinds of things, but in faith, he believes, he's given that boy, and when the boy is around 16 years of age, he's tested. Give that boy back to me. After victories come trials, folk, Jesus gets 12 disciples to follow him. They are thrilled. They leave their livelihoods. They are following Jesus. This is so exciting. They're watching miracles take place. He feeds thousands of people. We have gotten on the right bandwagon. This is thrilling. And then he says, let's go in the boat and let's cross the other side. It's been a long day. They, as they cross, they're with Jesus in the boat and a storm comes. They are tested in their faith by this huge storm that they, most of them fishermen, are terrified. And they wake him up and they say, Jesus, do you remember? Don't you care? Wow, victories, fun times. 14 kids get saved. VBS is a blast. Isn't this an encouraging message? We're going to be tested. We make a significant step of faith, like Elijah. Follows the Lord and ends up no water because he obeyed God. By the way, it's partially him too. What's he been praying for? No water. So it's a result of his own prayers. That ought to be really challenging. You pray for God to provide or God to build you up and then things go south. And this is the whittling process. So what does Elijah do when the water runs out? Hmm. It came to pass after a while the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. I don't hear any complaining in this text. I don't see any pouting. I don't see any anger launched at the Lord. I don't see any second guessing. What I do see is the next phrases. The word of the Lord came to him saying, and by the way in the Hebrew it's get going right away. Arise, get you to Zarephath which belongs to Zidon and dwell there. And it says in verse 10, so he arose and went. In other words, he stayed in Kareth until God says go. He waits for the green light from God. He doesn't maneuver, manipulate, he doesn't retreat. He doesn't regret. He stays where God wants to whittle him. What a challenge. And what goes right along with it is, while you're staying, you need to trust me more. While you're staying, it's one thing to trust God for your everyday bread that the birds are bringing, but it's another thing to trust God when everything has dried up. When all of a sudden, there is no more water. And you need to rely upon me more without rebellion. Man, that's Joseph. Joseph in prison does not give up. 
He remains godly. He even, pre- even reveals the dreams of the other prisoners. He even tries to minister to them. He even tries to benefit them by, by saying, assisting with the care of the other prisoners. And he does that for several more years. He is faithful, and eventually there's the crown, there's the reward, there's the elevation. Abraham, even when God says, give me back your son, your most precious possession, he raises the knife. He is trusting. He has even told the servant at the bottom of the hill, when they went up, he said, I and the boy shall come back to you. He's operating by faith in the middle of the greatest trial of his life, believing that God will keep his word. Even though he might have to sacrifice his son, God's going to do something. He's believing. God will do something miraculous. The boy's going to come back with me. Because God promised he's going to have children by Isaac. This idea of walking by faith, Elijah was doing it. In the middle of great trials, he stays. He doesn't complain. He is an individual who is relying and relying. Though he trusted God a lot in the past, God is saying, I want you to trust me even more. And he continues to pray for no rain. I got to tell you, this is me and my weakness. I would have started praying for rain. But there was something bigger here. There was a ministry that was bigger than Elijah, and he's got that heartbeat. God, just work in my mind, work in my heart. No wonder God's able to use him in the weeks that follow. Because God was able to mold him. God was able to manicure him and whittle him. Before God worked through him, there was a time when God needed to work in him. Can we change this and make this? Before God works through us, there's usually a time when he needs to work in us. What have you done in recent days to allow God to work in you? I know you've grown. You high school students, a lot of you have grown phenomenally over the last years. You have been in TNT. You have developed habits. You have, you have gotten to where you're saying, I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm trying to serve the Lord. You're going to have more trials in the next few months. You're going to go off to college, and it's going to get difficult. There's going to be personal challenges like roommates, homesickness, bills, more schoolwork than you ever thought you had before. You say, Pastor, you're making it sound so, so dismal. That's life. That's life. Oh, man. Oh, man, we're, we're starting off on our married life, and now that we're living together, everything will be peaches and cream. You just heard the giggles, okay? <laughs> Reality of life is wedded bliss is great, but there's going to be new trials and troubles called your spouse. I mean, called your life. Oh, we're having a baby. Now life will be perfect. (laughs) God bless you. It's a whittling time. And before God can use you as a parent to really make a difference, he's got to work in you. Before God can use you in the career you're, you're choosing, part of that college experience is God working in you. Are you letting God work? I, I, I kind of put, brought it down to where I, I can make it for me. 
For God to work in my heart, I need to choose another of God's commands to follow that I need to work on. What is there that I need to improve on so God can whittle me? Now, it'll change for some of us. The commands are different because at different phases of our Christian life. But what do you need to work on to make that next step? Some of those areas, and maybe, it's, maybe it is working on controlling your tongue. Maybe it is forgiving somebody. Maybe it is learning to give on a regular basis to your local church. Maybe it is that idea of, of really committing to your marriage. Maybe it is saying, I'm going to go and visit the widows. This is what pure and undefiled religion is, visiting the widows. What command are you going to work on? For God to build me and to whittle me, spending more time with him, is that something you can choose to do? The answer is yes, but will you? Will you increase some prayer time with the Lord over the next couple weeks? Will you increase your Bible study? Will you say, you know, it would be beneficial to come to Sunday school to learn more of God's Word? Will you say that when we have one of those prayer nights, I will set aside time on those Wednesdays to come and join the prayer night? To come on those Wednesdays and in an hour of time spend with others in praying. Would you and your spouse even say, let's pray together. Let's start that habit. What are you going to do to whittle in your life? How are you going to rely on God more to provide your needs? What are you going to do in response to the trials and the tests that he is bringing into your life as your brook seems to be drying up? Are you then trusting him even more? You have in the past... He's provided in the past, but now it's a new carrot. Now it's a new whittling trial. How are you going to respond? We, we bring it all the way around that says, okay, what do we need to do? Not complain, not to get upset, not to become worrying and anxious, but coming to the Lord and saying, God, give me wisdom. God, give me insight. Help me to curb my tongue. Help me to stay where I should stay until you guide me, you direct me. Lord, I will follow you no matter what. I won't give up. I won't quit. What are you going to work on? We started off saying God is a master artist. He is whittling us. He is molding us. Do you know what he wants us to look like? Do you know what he wants the, as a masterpiece? What he wants you to resemble? It's found in Romans 8 where we read, we know that all things work together for good that love him who are called according to his purpose. We like this verse. We debate this verse. We discuss this verse about God electing us to what? Some say it's to being born again. That's not what the passage says at all. God has predestinated us. He has elected us to be conformed to the image of his son. The whittling the molding of the clay is to make us look like Jesus. Do you know who this is? In our story that I'll share tonight, it's Lord Rotundo. But do you know whose face this is? It's a mask we had in our church attic. Do you know who it is? It's a political character. Mitt Romney. Right? Some of you don't even know who I'm talking about, but okay. It's his mask. Now, I, I've, I had some play in, in putting this one together. So this is my artistic work. It doesn't look like Mitt Romney totally. Okay. But it's kind of, not at all, you're right. 
But that's who, not in our story, but that's whose face it is. This is the way that some believers who worship on Sunday look compared to Jesus Christ. Nobody would recognize Jesus by the way they act, the way they walk, they talk. Nobody would say, there goes a Christ-like one. And God wants to whittle you so that you conform to his image so you look like the character, like the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't look like Christ, he has brought you under the word of God to help you to become more like Christ in the way that you act, you look. What do you need to work on this week? Don't walk away and say, okay, another service done. Chalk it up. I've done my duty. Walk out of here saying, God wants to whittle me. What area will I let him whittle to make me to look like a recognizable follower of Jesus Christ?